0: Welcome to the primary ride home for Friday, June 14th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, the DNC confirms the list of candidates for the first debates, plus which of those candidates will appear on which nights, key moments from Julian Castro's Fox News Town Hall, Schultz takes a break from his independent run, and a profile of Gabbard's childhood. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. A quick first item today. About 45 minutes after our deadline yesterday evening, the DNC announced that yes, the list of debate candidates that I read at the end of the show on Thursday is correct. So, score one for the math nerds over at 538 who tracked polls and finances for months, and in the end, they got it exactly right. Now, just for the record, here is the list of who will not be in the June DNC debates, but still could qualify for July or later. Steve Bullock? Mike Gravel, Wayne Messam, and Seth Moulton. Okay, and now the part you really want to hear. This morning, the DNC selected which candidates will appear on each night of the upcoming debates. Now, before I read these lists, I do want to read just one line from the New York Times story describing the scene of this lottery. Quote, The names were drawn from two boxes wrapped in white gift wrap with gold polka dots, the names of the candidates who had received an average of 2% support in polls were in one box, and the other candidates were in the other. End quote. So, they pulled names from each box, and here's what happened. On the first night, Wednesday, June 26th, we will have Cory Booker, Julian Castro, Bill de Blasio, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Jay Inslee, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Tim Ryan, and Elizabeth Warren. And then on the second night, Thursday, June 27th, we will have Michael Bennett, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, John Hickenlooper, Bernie Sanders, Eric Swalwell, Marianne Williamson, and Andrew Yang. So, that thing I said yesterday about how randomness could put the two polling leaders, Biden and Sanders, in the same debate, Well, that happened, so we'll just have to tune in and see how it goes. Last night, Julian Castro appeared in Tempe, Arizona for a town hall on Fox News. The moderators were Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, and the event was held at the Tempe Center for the Arts. Now, let me briefly describe the room to you. It looks to me like a very large lobby, you know, like the entryway to a theater. It's not inside the theater, but instead, a bunch of chairs have been placed throughout that big open area by the front door. That placement allowed Fox News to do two things. First, they were able to group people all around the candidate who was at floor level with them. And second, there's a giant glass wall that let in tons of beautiful Arizona sun. Okay, so let's get into some of what actually happened during the town hall event. The moderator spent the first five minutes of the hour asking Castro about the Clinton campaign and its handling of the Steele dossier. I'm going to play a clip here that starts near the end of Castro's initial answer and then runs through the second round of questioning on the same topic. The question he's answering here in the first part is basically, How was Clinton's campaign's handling of the Steele dossier, which in part was derived from foreign sources, different from President Trump's statements earlier this week that he would accept help from foreign entities in the upcoming election? Listen in.
1: The Mueller report laid out 10 different instances where the president either obstructed justice or tried to obstruct justice. And yesterday was one more example of why that's the case. I think, you know, a few years from now, whether it's Ten years from now, 20 years from now, we're going to look back on this as Americans, not Republicans or Democrats or liberals or conservatives and say, what in the hell was wrong with that president?
2: You know, and there has been bipartisan pushback, you know, that Republicans and Democrats um, talking about concern about foreign influence, foreign interference and bipartisan pushback on how he answered that question. But to Martha's question at the end there. What do you say to the people who look at Hillary Clinton's campaign spokesman, Brian Fallon? He told The Washington Post in October 2017, the first I learned of Christopher Steele or saw any dossier was after the election. But if I had gotten handed it last fall, I would have had no problem passing it along and urging reporters to look into it. Opposition research happens on every campaign. Understanding what you're saying about the framing of the moment. But you see the concern about the double standard here.
1: What I remember about that situation was that the late Senator John McCain of this state of Arizona, an honorable man who had served his country honorably and who, by the way, the president goes out of his way to insult even after his passing, which I think is unpresidential. What I remember is that uh, he and others um, uh, did go to the proper authorities, to the, the intelligence agencies with that information. And so the question on the table for the president yesterday was, if this kind of information came your way, would you go to the FBI? Would you go to our intelligence agencies? Well, that's exactly what John McCain did with that information. So these situations are just completely different. And what's most important is not what happened in the past. I don't understand why on this network and in so many conservative circles, people are still talking about Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is not on the ballot. Those of us who are running are on the
3: ballot.
0: And this kind of became a theme of the night. The moderators kept drawing comparisons between Castro and his fellow candidates, or Castro and the president, or Castro and Clinton, or, as in the following question, Castro and Kellyanne Conway. And in basically every instance, Castro declined to criticize his fellow candidates. He did address the actual questions, but deflected the portions that had to do with Democrats. He certainly had no problem criticizing Republicans. So here is the next clip.
2: Today, a federal watchdog agency recommended that White House counselor Kellyanne Conway be fired for violating the Hatch Act, essentially campaigning while in federal office. When you were HUD secretary, the same agency accused you of the same thing. Uh, President Obama gave you a pass. Should President Trump give Kellyanne Conway a pass?
1: Thank you for the question. Um, let, me, let me just uh, explain sort of what happened back then. And also, let me apply that to the political climate that I think that we have today. Uh, so in 2016, when Hillary Clinton was running, I was doing an interview at the HUD studio, uh, I think with Katie Couric. And um, we were talking about HUD business, about housing. And, and then she asked me a question about the presidential race. And I said, well, just let me put on my other hat, And and I talked about why I supported Hillary Clinton. Um, Somebody complained that that was a violation of the Hatch Act. And, you know, we consulted with our HUD general counsel and they said, you know what that 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 is. And so I said, I made a mistake. I'm going to make sure that I admit that and that we will do everything that we can so that I understand where those lines are and that everybody else on my team understands where those lines are. I think it's important for leaders to be able to acknowledge when they've made mistakes and then to be able to take proper action to correct that. The difference between me and Kellyanne Conway is, and the Office of Special Counsel pointed this out, she violated the Hatch Act and instead of saying, okay, look, I'm going to take these efforts to make sure that doesn't happen again, she said to hell with it. I'm going to keep doing it. They said that she had repeatedly done that. That's the difference. I don't I don't think that we're going to find anybody either in this race or in our homes and in our community that has never made mistakes. The true test of a leader is what do you do when you make that mistake? Are you big enough to own up to it and then make sure that you correct what you do in the future? Or do you do basically what she did, which is to say, no, I'm bigger than that. No, she did the wrong thing, and I support the Office of Special Counsel's determination that because she repeatedly violated it, even though she was clearly told that it was a violation, that she should be removed from office.
2: But in reality, you're pretty sure she walked not
0: Okay, and the last clip for today has to do with policing. Castro has released what he calls his People First Policing Plan, and he does a good job explaining the basics of that plan in the clip coming up. There's also a link to the full thing in the show notes. Now, because this is an audio-only medium, I want to point out that the body language you see from the audience is genuinely important to understanding this particular clip. When Castro speaks, you see people in the background, including people of color, nodding in agreement. At one point, Fox even cuts away to another part of the crowd, and you can see that the crowd overall in the whole room is very much with him on this. They are nodding their heads. If you want to see that for yourself, check out the YouTube link in the show notes. This is from about five minutes before the end of part two. Okay, listen in. Secretary Castro, how would you lessen the amount of use of excessive force by law enforcement? And do you support civilian review boards with subpoena and firing power?
1: Thank you very much uh, for the question. Uh, You know, I said a few days ago that... um, Earlier this year, I was in Charleston, South Carolina, and I was a few blocks away from the Mother Emanuel AME Church, where in 2015, Dylan Roof went in when people were worshiping in that church, and he murdered nine people. And then a few hours later, he was apprehended without incident, as I believe he should be apprehended without incident, taken into custody, taken to trial, and punished. Uh, But then what about Eric Garner? And what about Stefan Clark? And what about Jason Perro? And what about Sandra Bland? And what about Tamir Rice? And what about Laquan McDonald? And what about Pamela Turner? And what about Antonio Arce here in Tempe, Arizona? But too often times, too often times we have seen um, police mistreat, especially young men of color, a lot of young black men, right? How many of these videos do we have to watch? I don't care what your politics is, whether you're liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican. We're in an age of technology where you see the video now. How many of these videos do you have to watch before we understand that even though we have some great police officers, and I worked with some of them as mayor of San Antonio, that this is not a problem of a few bad apples. The system itself is broken, and we need to fix it. And that's why I've. That's why you know, I proposed this police reform plan. Nobody else on the campaign trail has done this. But I was proud to do it because I'm going to speak up for the voices of folks who often don't get somebody to speak up for them. And it's called for um, things like greater accountability through these review boards, through a use of force standard that says uh, basically that police departments shall not use lethal force unless all other reasonable alternatives in the situation have been expended. And that holds them accountable for those actions, that creates more transparency, that ensures that police departments have the support they need to recruit as well as possible, right, and to retain the best officers, and does things like that are simple and straightforward, like create a database of police officers that have been decertified. You know that right now we don't have a, a federal database that shows which police officers have been decertified because they engaged in egregious misconduct. So an officer, you've probably seen this in the past, an officer can commit misconduct here and then go the next town over, too often times, and get a job when they shouldn't in the first place. So these are simple but powerful All things right, to Mr. make Secretary, sure that we improve our policing.
2: If I could just ask you a follow-up on that. From
0: Alright, that's it for highlights from Castro's performance last night. To me, this was Castro introducing himself, in his own words, to a receptive audience. The moderators did a reasonable job, although they did inject a little more Fox-style questioning than in some previous town halls, but still, I didn't see it as particularly biased or out of line, given the current news. It is truly vital for candidates like Castro, who are less well-known, to be getting out there on stages like this right now. This is so that voters actually get a sense of who they are and where they stand ahead of those debates starting in a week and a half. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? And here's another quick bit of business. Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz announced on Wednesday that he is officially taking a three- to four-month break from campaigning for president as an independent. This follows a radical cutback in social media activity right after Joe Biden started his run and rumors that Schultz might be taking a break because he had back surgery. Well, he confirmed that. Reading from a Politico story by Pia Deshpande. Quote, in an email to supporters, Schultz said that after experiencing acute pain in Arizona while visiting during his exploratory campaign, he underwent three separate back surgeries in the state over the following two months. The potential candidate wrote that his doctors foresee a full recovery if he takes time to rehabilitate, adding that he will spend the summer doing so, end quote. So just a reminder, Schultz has been considering a run as an independent, not trying for the Democratic ticket. But some Democrats have been worried that he might pull votes from the left if he does run. So let's allow the man to recover from his three surgeries, and we will continue this conversation in, okay, checking my calendar here, September, or thereabouts. And last up today, Carrie Howley wrote a lengthy profile of Representative Tulsi Gabbard for New York Magazine. The piece is titled, quote, Tulsi Gabbard had a very strange childhood, which may help explain why she's out of place in today's Democratic Party and her long-shot 2020 candidacy. End quote. This profile is a legitimate long read, clocking in at 7,000 words. And while it focuses on many aspects of Gabbard as a candidate and a politician, its key focus has to do with her religion. Gabbard says she's Hindu and indeed the first Hindu member of the U.S. Congress. But in this profile, Howley argues that there's a lot more to it than that. Although Howley stops short of characterizing Gabbard's religious affiliation using any single term, she describes it at great length as being based around a charismatic man named Chris Butler. Reading from the article, quote, Butler taught vegetarianism, sexual conservatism, mind-body dualism, and disinterest in the material world. He taught a virulent homophobia, skepticism of science, and the dangers of public schools. He had been associated with Hare Krishna, and in fact claimed to have been given his Sanskrit name, Pananda Paramahamsa, by the founder of the Hare Krishna movement. But by the time he encountered the Gabbards, he had started his own group. His teachings revolved around worship of Krishna, but differed from those of Hare Krishna, in that he instructed his followers to learn from only a single guru, himself, and did not require them to shave their heads or wear robes. The lack of formal dress allowed the group an anonymity he encouraged. He forbade them from visiting India, which is not typical of Hare Krishna, and also, against Hare Krishna practice, married. His wife was one of his followers, Weilana, a popular yoga instructor who later had a long-running instructional yoga series on public television. Abraham Williams, Tulsi's husband, has helped with filming Weilana's videos. His mother also works for her. Whenever Butler traveled, he'd have the homes he stayed in lined with tinfoil to protect against electromagnetic radiation, end quote. I could go on, but, you know, 7,000 words. So Gabbard was born into this religious community known as the Science of Identity. She was homeschooled as a child, and according to the article, her first major exposure to the broader world was during her military service in Iraq. This is one of those articles where a summary does not do it justice. I will say this one line stuck out at me as essentially the thesis of the piece: quote, "How far does our commitment to religious diversity extend?" End quote. That is the key question I think we should ask when reading this article. So check out the last link in the show notes for seven thousand words on Gabbard, including a ton of stuff about her politics and service in Congress, not just the religious stuff that I genuinely did not know about. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, y'all, it is Friday, and I am genuinely psyched about that. I have got a busy calendar here, including naps and hanging out with the cat, and maybe, maybe, visiting Portland's Rose Garden, which I am told is in full bloom right now. That is, if I can fit it in between my lazy days. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all on Monday.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.